Hello and welcome to the 106th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and the second half will discuss the game they hit the remote, which in this case is the Solus Project by Howritzes. Jung, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Shurti uh, Jung. I'm also known as Haurensis. And uh, I'm, well, I'm a bit of everything on the Solus Project. I'm the creative director. I guess I'm the game director, the gameplay director. I did part of the story and so on. I did a huge amount of work. And it's my original vision that I pushed through. So what? we worked in it for three years long, so it's been a long ride. Wow. First of all, congratulations on finishing a game. That sounds really weird yeah, to non-game you. developers. Like, what do you mean, finishing mm-hmm. a game? How, why is it so? It's really, really hard to finish creating anything, actually. But a video well, game. I, I guess it's not. Sorry. It's not really finished to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's the thing with making games. It's not really finished. You just consider it. I'm not going to continue working on it. That's the stage you reach. <laughs> yes, you, I have to stop now. What do you mean? No, really. <laughs> if I carry on with this. Um, uh, I will never finish it, and that's the way. With you know, you hear of rock band spending four out four years in an album on a studio. Like, what are you doing? Just, just, mm-hmm. just release the damn album for God's sake, you know. And it's all about that. It's all about creative mm-hmm. endeavors. And it's something I've always find fascinating with um, the creative endeavor, whether it's video games or any other medium, whether it's a, a play or a book, what have you. There's a lot of destruction going on. You're making mm-hmm. things and you're taking it going, yeah, that works, but not in this game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're just taking it and go, let's parcel that, put it in some other project, because it's not going to work on this one. But it's a good idea, mm-hmm. but not for this. I'm sure you had a yeah, lot absolutely. of that on, on the Solos project. But before we get delving mm-hmm. into that and delving deep into the Solos project, which, believe me, the game is exceptionally deep. Oh, boy. In a good way. Fantastic way. We need more games like this, by the way. But anyway, we'll come back to that later. How did you make your start making video games? Yeah, so when I was 15, 16, I forgot exactly when I was, and it's been a while now. Um, that was in 1998, I think, something like that. Or I, uh, we got an ad at home, right? So I was living at home, we got an ad. In the ad was this uh, advert for buying Unreal, the first Unreal game. Uh, it was really cheap, it was something like five euros. So I got on my bike and I cycled to the nearest town because I was living on the countryside. It took me an hour to get there. And I literally arrived five minutes before closing time. So it was almost too late. Right? Right. So I bought the game, went back home. I just got my first proper computer. Right? So this was my first proper game. Obviously, I played other games before. But this was my first real 3D game. You know, high-end graphics for that time. So is this Unreal, and so on. you, say? you say? Yeah, the first Unreal. It's brilliant. Right? That so game I got, is brilliant. Yeah. Carry on, carry on. Carry on. Ab- absolutely. So I got that, went home, played through the game. was absolutely, you know, late 90s. I didn't have internet at home. Because the internet, it wasn't, I mean, I didn't want to get 56K or whatever. And uh, better internet wasn't available yet back then. Yeah, people and forget so that, don't you know, they? Yeah, carry on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And we didn't even have Facebook. I mean, there's no YouTube. There's absolutely no, nothing, right? There's nothing. I there actually, was, there no, I went to the... Groups. Yeah, there was news groups and the web. That was it. That's all we had. <laughs> yeah, so I went to the library, which was just one kilometer from the house, so that was okay. And I went to download levels there for Unreal. <gasps> on a floppy drive and then had to copy them on a floppy drive so I had to purchase the copy drive the floppy f- 
from the library and then it can put it on the floppy and then hope it's less than 1.3 megabytes, right? And then it can go home and read that one single level that I downloaded. So I continued like that for a while. Um, but eventually you, you click through the files and you discover the editor in the installation files of the game. So I open up the editor, right? And again, I don't have internet. I couldn't really properly read English. I mean, I could kind of read it, but not to an extent where you could, you know, properly work and understand it. Um, but I just started clicking around. And I clicked around for months on end. Literally just, you come home from school, you open up the editor, I've got no clue what I'm doing, I've got no one to ask, I have no previous experience, but I just clicked everything. Mm -hmm. And eventually you find a pattern, and you find a pattern, if I click this, then do that, and then do this, then do this, then I get a room, cool. And if I then do this and this and this, then I get a door in my room, and then I can add a light. So I literally learned the entire thing, just clicking things, months long. That's and eventually I got a level. That's fantastic, isn't it? Just like yeah. this. What, what I mean, the thing is, that's the extraordinary thing about computers and programming is that you can't do any real damage. <laughs> I mean, you're nope. not gonna you're not gonna hurt anything really, unless you're doing something like drive. Or maybe there are some exceptions to that. What I've just said, I know, I know there are exceptions, but ninety nine point nine 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 times out of a hundred, doing things with software and computing, you really can't hurt anything. So. Yeah, you're just like, well, no one's going to tell me. No one's going to explain this to me. I haven't got this big, you know, bumper guide on how to do Unreal levels. You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just got oh. an editor in there. Knock yourself out. Yeah, and I had basically no tutorials. I had a, a text file from uh, Cliff Lozinski, actually. It was a three-page text file, just literally at TXT, right? That's it. So I read that, and that was the only help I got. And I made levels. Eventually, I got internet at, at home. And then I needed to discover, oh, Oh, damn, there's an entire community out there, right? So you start talking to them. You start downloading their levels. You start uploading your levels. And then it went much, much faster, obviously, in my progress. So a couple of months after that, I started uploading my levels. I got feedback, and I rapidly improved. So about a year after I got Internet, um, I got up to a point. I, I made a level, actually, that got quite popular. Because the thing is, back then, and I don't think game developers right now realize that. I mean, the younger generation... Back then, you had a really, really vibrant level design community, and I really miss that still. Right? If you think about the, the late 90s, the early 2000s, you had like Quake, Half-Life, and Unreal. Those were the three big ones. And they made tons and tons of levels. There were 10,000 levels out there for Unreal and all the tournaments. Right? And Quake was the same, and I think Half-Life had a lot more. And it was this really vibrant level design community. You had like levels of the week, levels of the day, pictures of the day. You had different review sites. You had web, you know, websites that did nothing more than just review levels. That doesn't exist anymore these days, or not at the same way. So I got into that whole community and the whole scene there, and I started doing well. My levels actually got really success successful, some of them. And I started getting all these things like level of the week, level of the month, best level of the year or whatever, right? All these different community initiatives. And it started going really, really good. So you start making friends, and those friends are really good as well. And you start working on mods as well, all kinds of mods. And then eventually, um, your work gets noticed, of course. Your friends are starting to get hired. I had more trouble getting hired, I remember in the beginning, because I was living in Belgium, and there's absolutely nothing in Belgium. I mean, there was nothing in Belgium 15 years ago. There still is nothing in really? Belgium. Really? I, I kind of like yeah, the country. Really. But I, I mean, when I visited it, and a few, fair few times I've been there, kind of like it there but okay sorry but yeah. you mean that yeah, but, you mean the community for video like or not video games but video game development and that kind of you know something that we've enjoyed in the uk for decades and that kind of thing didn't mm -hmm. really exist 
Nope, nope. Nice you had beer, you have chocolate, <laughs> you have nice houses. The houses, the housing standard in Belgium is actually quite it's good compared to other countries. It is. It's a beautiful country. Oh dear. I'm not being patched. Yeah, but that's where it ends. Yeah, that's where it ends. Okay. So you, you, you um, carry on. Sorry, I interrupted. You carry on. Yeah, so. I mean, I had I had more problem getting a job, right? Because mm. and it's kind of frustrating in the beginning. I remember it was really frustrating because you have these friends or people that aren't even friends. You just know them, and they make one nice level, you know, and they get hired because they happen to live next door to some kind of big studio who happens to need someone at that very time, right? Right. It's just the right time, the right place, and they get hired. And you spent I spent months and months and months per level and making them the best possible things and trying to do it as technically correct as I could, right? Doing everything as good as I could. I didn't get hired because there was no one near me. There were simply no companies near me, right? And a company from the States, for example, wouldn't hire me. I mean, who would hire a 17-year-old from Europe and then trying to fix their visa? It doesn't work, right? No. So I had, I had some issues there, but eventually it worked out. So we, we actually formed a team, a couple of us, and we were going to do a map pack. So we emailed Epic, and we talked to Cliff Brzezinski, and we said basically, so look, we're going to do this uh, map pack. Would it be okay if we would send you the finished levels? <clears throat> and if you like them, could you maybe say that this is an official Unreal Tournament level pack? Right? So can you make it official for us? And then, and then Cliff and Epic said, sure, whatever, make the levels and we can talk about it. So we did that. And then we sent levels to them. And they go back to us and they said, yeah, actually, you know what? We're just going to add these to Unreal Tournament 2004. And do you want to work for us? So that was nice. Wow. So that's how I got started properly. I remember, and at the, yeah, Unreal Tournament 2004, that was before, yeah, because they released 2003, and, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. So you ended up and, working for Unreal. Yeah, and actually I did that in two different ways. So at the very same time that was happening, um, I was applying, I was emailing to companies in my neighborhood, and basically means going to Holland, because the Netherlands has a couple more companies, at least back then, than Belgium. Yes. And one of the, I found this uh, smaller studio there. I started working for them, did an internship actually for them in the beginning. It's really boring work I, I did there was making uh, low poly houses, 100 polygons per house with textures that were like 16 by 16 textures. It was ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous. Right. Um, but then eventually those guys talked to a small company in the States and that small company in turn talked to Epic. And that small company, those were the Psyonix guys. Those are the guys who did um, uh, the Rocket League, I think, right? Oh, the, the popular yeah, game right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so those those small guys in America, uh, Psyonix, those are the guys from Rocket League, right? And back then, those were those people were talking to Epic, and they proposed to Epic, look, can we make a vehicle mod for you guys? And then Epic said, sure, just build us a demo, and then we can look at it. So Psyonix went to the studio in Holland, and they said, can you guys help us build a level? And since I knew how to do Unreal, that studio in turn went to me and said, can you make us the level so we can send it to them so they could send it to Epic? Right? This is weird yeah, setup, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I did that level. I built Torlan. And that became one of the Unreal Tournament 2004 demo levels even. I built that. They sent it to them. They got the contract. The other ones got the contract. Everyone got the contract. And I got hired a second time by Epic basically in the same period of time. That, so That's amazing. All because you started fiddling around with an editor. You had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> but you had a talent, obviously. I mean, that, that sense of being able to see the world on a 2D plane, but as a 3D mm-hmm. space, that's a skill. I know you know that now, but at the time you thought, well, can't everyone do this? But they can't, you know. Mm-hmm. 
They can't. That, 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 that being able to, to visualize a 3D space on a flat screen, which I know is mm-hmm. becoming less and less of a problem with VR and stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. But right now, it's it, vast majority of people, those who don't have you know, vast sums of money, uh, is a 2D, you know, and, and that's, that's a skill that you can't, you know, and some of those levels um, on Unreal and Unreal Tournament, and it's, it never ceases to amaze me how you get over the problem of what I've always found, is certainly in the early Doom levels, when people were making mm-hmm. Doom levels, uh, back, in the, back in the day when they first started doing the mods and making maps for, for, for games or for, for first-person shooters, was bottlenecks. I find it fascinating when you're doing a, a multiplayer game, is how do you avoid the problem of creating a, a massive bottleneck where everyone just congregates, blasts some pieces, and it becomes ceases to be fun? I don't know, it's something mm-hmm. you've probably studied over the years and know how to avoid, or to, to you know, that kind of thing. Uh, understanding the flow of play, making it entertaining, and, you know, uh, there's, there's the, 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 one of the most famous mods is is the battlefield mod, which I think is Desert Combat, which is a mod, mm-hmm. and and that that would you know turned it into you know eventually became Battlefield Two, Three, and Four, and what have you, and it's you know, the, the the whole idea of you batting over a landscape and running along. My only negative about a Battlefield series is I'm digressing a little bit is having to you drop in, run for ten minutes, get shot, drop in again, run for another ten minutes. Get shot, come mm-hmm. back again. You know, and is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how how do you how did you overcome that as a designer? Do you think to, to make sure that your levels are tight, compact, but not to the point where they're not entertaining? I think, I mean, to begin with, I think making levels, multiplayer levels for fast-paced shooting games, is really really interesting to do. I think. I mean, that's obviously what I started with. So I'm biased. Yes. When you, I think, when when someone who doesn't know shooters looks at a shooter game, especially as multiplayer, and you would ask them, so what is this about? They're going to say it's about shooting people, right? It's about shooting, but it's not about shooting. What it's actually about is almost like chess. It's all, it's more about the psychological play between the different players and trying to understand what is the other guy trying to do, what is he going to try to do against me. Like you really try to see what the other person will do, right? And as a game developer and a level designer of those kind of levels, you try to have to go beyond that step again. And you have to try to see what your imaginary players might be thinking in every single situation. So it goes really quite deep in how much you have to think and how you can try to guide people. It's also quite easy, actually, to guide people subconsciously. Like, a lot of testing has been done on this in the past uh, 100 years or whatever. For example, if you have a large open room and there is this subtle line in the ground, people are just going to follow the line. Yeah. If you're going to ask them why did you go there, they would never tell you oh, there was a line in the ground. No. They simply follow the line. And there's a lot of that very subtle stuff you can do. So it goes very deep, I think, psychologically. Yeah. And, that makes it really interesting. And, and you know, you, you compare it to chess, but I'm a, bit critic, I'm a big critic of chess because ultimately it is a, a series of patterns. <laughs> and you're, comp- mm-hmm. you're competing one set of patterns against another set of patterns. And whoever's got more knowledge of how those two patterns interact is going to win. Annoying, and it, yeah, but a, a level is not that f- far from that because okay. most people actually they repeat their own actions. Mm-hmm. Yes, people tend to repeat because they tend to know if I do this, this, this worked for me last ten times. You know, the last ten times I played this level, I could do this. Yeah, so they keep to the same strategies because that's what they feel comfortable with, and so basically they create patterns for themselves. Right, and you create patterns in the level as well because, if for example, if you have to do pickup management, 
they're going to have to understand when does the armor spawn, when does the health spawn, when does this weapon spawn, right? You're the one placing those. So you're the one making that pattern, basically, because they will start running a circle through the level that's the most optimal to hit those points at a given time. Yes. So you kind of know what patterns they're going to be doing anyway. Yeah. Oh, that weapon's there. That power-up is there. So if I do that, 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 and bounce around and then drop that. Yeah, I used to do that. You're right. Mm -hmm. Subconsciously. But yeah, I didn't really realize I was actually trying to find the optimum path. I just thought, well, I know what this stuff is. I may as well get it now. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean... When, when, when I tend to, I play a lot of our tournament myself and I tend to play with other people and I tend to categorize them. So I tend to analyze how do they play and I place them in my own categories. Right. Right. So you had to complete noobs and those basically did nothing to, to try to tackle me predicting what they were going to do. Right. So if they went into a corridor, you would know they would come out at the end of the corridor at exactly the amount of time it would take for them to cross that corridor. Right. Right. And then you have the next category and you want to know the next category and is going to understand that I'm going to predict they're going to come out of the corridor. So they're going to stop, run back and come out the way they came in. <laughs> yes. Right. But you can see that they only think that far. So the moment I categorize them as that kind of player, I simply adjust my thinking and I can do, you know, you can counter all of their moves. Right. And then you got the next player who thinks they're one step ahead of that. So they're going to pause in the middle of the corridor or kind of run back and then run forward again. Yes. So basically, they still come out in one way, but they offset my timing because I can yes. kind of guess how long it will take, and they try to confuse me. Yes, they went in but there. You, you know, and they went in there. Yeah. But then, hang on, they haven't come out yet. And they haven't come at the other end. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but they wouldn't have come to the other end yet. No, no. Right? They would probably right, go yeah. to the same one. So you really categorize them like yeah, that. Yeah. But the point is, everyone makes these same patterns. So you just analyze the patterns, right. and you make sure the level allows people to implement different patterns. That's the thing. So they have different options and different strategies they can try. So do you think, as a designer, I'm going to ask you this and we move on to the next question, because it's mm -hmm. related, the next question is related. Do you think Counter-Strike DE Dust is that good a map? <laughs> I mean, I played it, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 times when I started making games, because it's a really old level. Uh, so my only memories are from basically the late 90s or the early 2000s. Right, so you can't remember. I, I think, why? Why are people I, I so... remember the layout, yeah. What is it? But, what is it about that level? I don't, I don't get it. I don't... No, I'm just dumb. But there's something... I think with a lot of those, those kind of levels, same for Arnold Tournament, same for Quake, same for other, you know, Team Fortress, if you want, um, those are the original levels people started with, right? And there's a certain nostalgic value to them. Right. So A, I think a certain number of people just play it because that's what they're used to. Or that's what they have nice memories of. Because, hey, five years ago when I played Counter-Strike, I had really good clan wars in this level. So they go back to what they remember. And it's, it's also a, a degree of... Because if you, look at, um, if you look at those kind of communities, they've got like 10, 20, 30, 40,000 levels or something for Counter-Strike, at least, if I'm taking a guess. And what do people play? They probably play the same 10 levels all the time, every week, every month, yeah. right? And it's not that those 10 levels are so much better than the other ones. It's just people get stuck on those levels. It's what they're used to. It's what everyone expects. Yeah, and, and the very great example of that is, is MOBAs. It's, it's not even a different mm -hmm. level. It's just the same freaking three channels. It's the same arena. Yeah. Same. <laughs> yeah. So I think if you want to go really far into this, yeah. the thing what competitive players want is they want something that's as equal as it can be, right? right? So it's really about skill and not about knowing the level in a way or not about exploiting a new level and then people get confused and then they get shot and then they're going to blame the level probably, something like yeah. that. Yeah. 
they want it as flat as it can be, right? So as little graphics perhaps as it can be or, you know, those kind of things. And that fits into that. So, as a creator, this is the next question. <laughs> mm-hmm. What are your biggest influences as a creator? What do you think that drives you most? I think what I did in Solus was actually that Solus was massively influenced by my biggest inspirations. Okay. When I built Solus project, I basically wanted to build my dream game, the game that I wanted to play, right. which in turn right. is the game. I mean, that's based on all the influences I went through as a designer. So obviously there's Unreal 1 because I started with that game and I built my whole early career on that. So obviously there's that. And a lot of that comes back in Solus, right? You're crushed on an alien planet. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, it's an intriguing but very deadly alien planet. Yes, I remember um, um, in Unreal when you look up at the sky. It's just mm-hmm. stunning. At the time it was beyond. Yeah. I had a 3D FX graphics card, I think it was. It yeah. was a really powerful graphics card. I had a you know good beefy PC, and it really was a game to show it off on. It's stunning, and you're mm-hmm. right. It's the, I'm thinking about it now. I didn't, didn't realize it subconsciously. Like, oh wow, yeah, I've seen this before, at least initially. But then things changed quite dramatically mm-hmm. <laughs> when you started playing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the the sun streaming, the different planets of oh, you know, the moons, the multiple moons. Mm-hmm. Which is always fascinating mm-hmm. us as, as Earth dwellers. Like, what would it be like to have more than one satellite up in the sky? And uh, mm-hmm. you know, and you've you've done it with a plum to have those multiple moons, and they're much bigger as, as well, of course. But um, okay, so yeah, uh, your earliest sort of experiences as, as a game player, you know, playing Unreal is, is fed through right through to this day. Is that what you're saying? Basically, yeah. I mean, I obviously, you play Pac-Man, you play all the, the original ones and Asteroids and whatever. Yes. Um, I played a lot of Mario, I played Tetris before I played Unreal. I mean, obviously you play all kinds of games, but none of those games had the same impact as Unreal or as your first proper 3D game where you started to fully realize the potential of this medium. It's not just a couple of pixels moving and fun moving those pixels around. You can actually build entire worlds with it and visualize it and have the story and the atmosphere and really feel afraid when you go through something. And that's when I realised that, and I think that's the impact it made. Right. I must empathise with you there. I must, as much as I like Mario mm-hmm. games and those platformers and really good arcade games like Gallagher, especially when they're doing a big score run and you're like, oh my god, I'm in the zone. It's great. But, yeah, I think, yeah. If, if, sorry, to, to strengthen that, if you play mobile games, most mobile games nowadays, you don't play those because of the story, or you don't play those because you want to be immersed. You just play those to do something. Yes. Right. And when you play those arcade games in the 80s and the 90s, you play those because you wanted to do something or you wanted to try to beat a score. But you had some kind of objective like that. You didn't play them to get immersed. And it was Unreal and Half-Life 1 and I guess Quake 2 or whatever as well. Uh, it were those games that introduced the fact, OK, you can play games not just to do something, but to actually experience a story similar to a movie, even though it was very early on. That's where the that's where the path started to started to uh, divert. Yeah. And I've. Personal, yeah, I agree. The, the, the games like the first game I found that I found uh, I got absorbed in. Uh, I'm very old, so I'm talking about early '80s. Was um, probably Lords of Midnight and another game called. Um, well, we probably know this one is Elite, uh, the first version of mm-hmm. Elite. That was amazing to fly around the world or universe and just do what you like. Go on, off you go. Do what you like. But here's the tools. Here's the universe. Go out there and make mm-hmm. your fortune or not, as the case may be. And uh, mm-hmm. I found more, I got more from those, ultimately, mm-hmm. when I thought, think back at it. 
It's those games, those games that draw you into a universal reality that is different from our own, and yet somehow yeah. familiar also. Because that's what drives us, that's what draws us, isn't it? When you're, you know, that's one of the criticisms we we'll have against 2001, or those, the Arthur C. Clarke books, is that it goes into realms that are so abstract, so difficult to comprehend, that they are hard to relate to. And that's deliberate, mm-hmm. because that's because the, the beings and the aliens are so beyond and difficult for us to comprehend. That's the point. They're almost godlike, even mm-hmm. though they're not. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's, and, but when it comes to games like yours, there is a sense of there's some inf- unfamiliarity, but also the familiar as well. The tr- same drivers and then same sort of thing. So, yeah, I, that's a great answer. Uh, definitely, we're all inspired by things that we're first impacted by. So that's very... First mm-hmm. feelings of oh my god I'm looking I'm in another alien world I'm exploring it for the first time for the first time you know the subsequent like you know another example I really love Fallout Three didn't really like Four so much mm-hmm. you know I just I couldn't get drawn into Four mm-hmm. as much as I got completely absorbed by by Three you know I, mm-hmm. I I liked Skyrim but I you know I couldn't do the online game that kind of stuff it's it's there is a there is a, a different sense of the first, the first um, bite is uh, is the deepest, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what developer in the industry do you most admire, and why? Oh, that's a hard question because I'm I'm too pragmatic for that. I think. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be like a fanboy or so, and no. say like this guy is the best guy ever. I, I usually, you know, you go for certain things like this guy is really good at that. Uh, this guy is really good at that, so I admire that aspect of him. You know. You start. It's not just one person. No, it could be a company. We've had people sort of cite companies. Um, I'm not going to give mm-hmm. any ideas, but you know, a company is fine as well. Yeah, I mean, any any company basically making really nice games, I can totally respect that. I mean, yeah, even yeah. if you don't make nice games, but yeah. my point is, if you obviously if you make really nice games, that makes you really respect. I mean, Naughty Dog, for example, is doing. You know, they really perfected the whole approach there with Uncharted and Last of Us. Well, I love playing those games. Yes. Um, I played. Um, uh, let's see what else we have. Another one is uh, Life is Strange from I think it was Don Not if I remember mm-hmm. correctly, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really nice as well. So I mean I respect okay. people making those kind of games, yeah. but it's hard for me to say you know this particular person I completely trust this person to always make the best thing no, ever. Because sometimes it doesn't happen, does it? Yeah. You get someone who makes a great game initially, or they do, and then they do mm-hmm. a follow up and it's bad. Happens. Mm-hmm. You know, every creative yeah. endeavor, you can't, you know. And um, so, yeah, I, I've I've had different answers to that question. Some of them are saying, I don't want to offend anyone. Because <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they know lots of people. Like, well, if I don't call him out, he's going to get mad. So, mm-hmm. um, another popular one is Blizzard. A lot of developers like what Blizzard do. Um, I, I've never really been into Blizzard, no. to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I totally respect what they do, but it just never struck with no, me. No, I understand, yeah. So I never... Yeah, I, it's... Um, they are very, very good at what they do, but they don't, you know. And it's the, thankfully, the video game medium is so broad now. I think it's wonderful that it's so broad. I don't know about you, but mm-hmm. I think we're in an extraordinary time where video games don't just have to be about Marines in space shooting things. Um, mm-hmm. They can be about lost astronauts who are about to die. <laughs> Unless you feel well, I mean, it's still kind of a marine in space. It's just he's on his own. And he has no yeah, guns he's anymore. Got a gun. He's got he's, he's got a rock, sharp. Anyway, uh, mm-hmm. I, I that cracked me up when I got hold of that rock. What am I supposed to do with this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
we'll talk about that later in the second half of the show. But what, sir, are you playing right now? Um, actually, the only game I'm playing right now is a Factorio, which I quite enjoy. It does get a bit of a long game, but it's quite enjoyable. Do you know it? Name, same name again? Factorio. Oh, Factorio, did you say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's quite enjoyable, actually. I don't know it. Could you describe um, it to us? Yeah, so it's still in early access on Steam, right. and I mean, the kind of games I like are like a Traffic Tycoon, those kind of things, you know, Transport Tycoon, those kind of games, okay. where you try to manage the whole thing, and also I played a lot of Total Annihilation back in the days, oh. and I especially liked the base building of Total Annihilation, right, where you try to build this massive base and you have to try to defend it. I didn't really attack anyone, just build bases. <laughs> the ultimate So, Yay. Yeah, basically, <laughs> you make an extremely powerful base, and only then you attack everyone. Excellent. When you, when you basically can't lose anymore. Okay. Um, and Factorio is basically that. You're, you're building a factory on an alien planet. So you have a single player that's basically like the, the commander in Total Annihilation, and that single player builds the bases and the buildings and everything else. So you have to set up the conveyor belts and the whole, uh, the whole setup, right? So you need copper. The copper has to be mined somewhere, then it has to be transported, then it has to be transformed into copper plates or whatever, and then the copper plates have to be transformed into copper wires, etc. And eventually you get like a machine. A machine makes another machine, and it starts to spread. And it's 2D. It runs really fast, and even on a laptop or so, so it's ideal when I'm traveling. I quite enjoy the game. Cool. I, ha- I have a, um, a recently replaced my laptop. Um, I say recently, mm-hmm. you know, about six months ago. Uh, I had a Dell. It was lasted eight years. I, I don't. Mm-hmm. I did rip out the hard drive and stuff, and I put some more RAM in it. But other than that, it's amazing that it lasted so long. But uh, I, I mm-hmm. eventually replaced it with a Mac. Because I wanted something to last and also well built. Mm-hmm. And uh, and mm-hmm. uh, does this game run on the Mac? I don't know. I'm I'm curious about it. I have no idea. Check. I don't you use know, Macs. Nor do I until very recently. I thought someone sold it on me. I thought, oh, okay, I'll give it a shot. And they are quite nice. The, the OS is very nice. Uh, but yeah, you always have to ask that question. Does it work on a Mac? Oh, I don't know. Let me just check. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that sounds. So it's, but- it's a vast sort of. Is it a building game? Is it a building simulation sort of like? It's it's a building game, yeah, and a management game, and has a procedurally generated world that's endless, as far as I understand. Oh. And there is monsters on that world, and if they smell the pollution, they will attack your base. So you do have to defend the base. Ah, oh, right, cool. I do love that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a nice game. Yeah. Other than that, it's yeah. just, uh, finished Uncharted, of uh, course. I haven't done anything. I haven't started it yet. <laughs> I've been distracted by other things. Um, mm-hmm. So I need to I need to get on to that uh, Uncharted Four because I'd love to Uncharted One, Two, and Three. Although I, out of the mm-hmm. three so far, I preferred Two. Um, out of, yeah, everyone says that. Yeah, I think I'm not being following the crowd. I just one had that bit at the end with the zombies, which was just irritating. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I quit at that point. Did you? Nicely done. I wish. Yeah, I quit know, zombies. Like, I don't need zombies. Why did? Why? And at worst, there were Nazi zombies. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? I, was, I remember yelling at the screen going, really? Nazi zombies? Really? By the way, if there's anyone saying it was spoilers, come on! Come on, Statute Limitations, <laughs> that game's very old. Haven't played it by now? Anyway, um, mm. so that's a great answer. I'm go- now going to th- force me to spend money now. I might get them on the show. <laughs> that, probably, that happens a lot. Mm. A lot of games I play on... on, on uh, one way I recruit guests is actually, oh, I like this game. Let's get them on the show. <laughs> so that happens mm-hmm. quite. It's much to yourself as well, because I, I really, really love the Solus Project. Speaking of which, let's move on mm-hmm. to the second half of the show, where we talk about the Solus Project. 
Sir, please. Oh. First question. It's not really a question. It's called the Zeroth question, which is a bit of a Asimov reference. It's really given your chance to tell us what is the Solus Project. Oh, this is a famed elevator pitch. It is. Um, it is because I, we finished the game a month ago, so I'm in vacation mode. So the elevator pitch is starting to drift from my mind now. <laughs> <laughs> the game is basically done for us. Um, well, it's a single-player survival exploration experience where you play as a person who crashed on an alien planet. So the backstory goes that uh, Earth has been destroyed. The remainder of mankind is on uh, three large colony ships floating around near Pluto, and basically the entire solar system is wrecked. Uh, those three big ships, they have only enough fuel to go to one single other location, right? So they build five other scout ships, small ships, and they send those five ships to five possible solar systems near them that might have a planet that seems habitable. You're on one of those five ships, your ship arrives, and it gets shot down or something terrible happens. And you crash land and you're the only one left of your crew. And while you play on the planet, you quickly find out that perhaps you're mankind's only hope, in fact. So you're the only one left and Earth is going to... Earth has already been destroyed. Mankind is going to die very soon. They're running out of resources. So the only one who can save them is you. And you're stuck on an alien planet and you cannot phone home. Hmm? Basically, you're E.T. on another planet and you're trying to phone yeah, home. Yeah, without, without U.S. government forces trying to kidnap you. Uh- <laughs> yeah, so there's no one who will ever, ever come to you. There's no other ships who can come to you other, other than the big ships. Uh, there's no rescue operation. You're 100% on your own. But if you kill yourself or if you die then mankind will probably be exterminated. So that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. It's best not to... I found it quite overwhelming. No offence to yourself. Um, <laughs> but both... I found it... I drew myself in... Knowing that was the backstory, knowing how dire the situation was, I, it was very easy to get, I can't do this, it's too depressing, it's too... It's like trying to... It's, this, this, this whole scenario is, is one of, of a nightmare. But then again, mm-hmm. I also found it empowering to think that, okay... It's all up to me. I can do this, I think. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the introduction, and we'll talk about it in detail in a moment, but the fact you're, you're slammed in the whole introduction, this is not a spoiler, everyone. This happens in the last first two minutes. You're, you're, you're in this escape capsule, you slam into, the, into a beach somewhere uh, on this planet, and you pop it out, and you know, it's filled with alien life and all sorts of weirdness. Um, and you know it, from the get-go, everything's telling you to remind you if you don't, if you don't immediately go into survival mode, almost caveman-like survival mode. You know that that part of your brain—they call it lizard brain, I think it is—that part of your brain mm-hmm. where you, you just go into survival mode. You're going to die very quickly, very, very quickly. In fact, um, it's very unforgiving mm-hmm. in that way. And for me, that was that was the, the initial thing: is the first thing you've got to do is not die. <laughs> you know I've got a lot of questions I've got thousands of questions because I'm seeing stuff I'm hearing stuff I don't care I just want to live right now and um, mm-hmm. this leads to my first question to you really the main premise behind the Solus Project which I believe and you may disagree is one of survival yet survival not only of you but the human race itself but Exploration plays a massive role in the game because without that, you don't actually succeed in doing what you're supposed to do. How do you believe mm-hmm. you've managed to balance those two drivers? 
Well, first of all, you have a lot of survival games out there. It's really a hype the last couple of years. So we started stepping away a little bit from calling it a survival game. Because when you call it a survival game, everyone expects you to be able to chop down 60 trees and then build a hut yes. with it. And we're not doing that at all, right? And there is a very... <laughs> yes, and there's a big difference there. Uh, that, that points to the exploration part, right? So we're not doing base building. You're not going to be crafting 100 things. There's no point building a base and staying on one spot because you can't build anything. So the only way you're going to survive is if you keep on pushing on and keep on exploring. So you have to push on. You cannot stay on one spot. And that's how the two balance each other out and, and strengthen each other. You can only survive if you explore. And obviously you can only explore if you survive. Yes, and that's the wonderful sort of the balance between... I, don't want, I wanted to drag that out of you. It's just like that extraordinary sense of, mm -hmm. well, okay, you need to survive. But in order to survive, you need to explore. But the more you explore, the more mm -hmm. you expose, your, expose yourself to risk. Of not surviving, but without exploring, you don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like one yeah. leads to the other, leads to the other, and it's. I can tell when I'm playing through the game. It's an extraordinary experience. I can't recommend it enough. Everyone listening, it's a fantastic game, and the atmosphere and the sound, the lighting is extraordinary. But it does give that sense of, you know, impending doom within minutes, not hours, mm -hmm. not days, mm -hmm. minutes. And if you and, and, and yeah. from the outset, you've actually told by a little like you get a little gadget thing with you, that, and there's bits of paper lying around for to help you out. Was to say if you don't go into survival mode immediately, you're going to die. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. But it's a lot of subtle things like that because you just mentioned you go into caveman yes. mode, right? So the first thing you see, starting on that beach, is you see a small cave. It's a lot of symbolism all the way through. We literally tell you you're now caveman. Here's cave. Make torch, make fire. We literally make you a caveman. Well, That's the very first thing, yes. Juxtaposition. There's a phrase that mm -hmm. is overused, but I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> is you've got this little handy thing. You've got this little digipad, mm -hmm. which, which is with you, you know, and you just you look up at it, and it tells you things. And it, it's, it, it's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's one of the most advanced pieces of technology that you have. Well, on one hand, you've got this amazing piece of technology which took generations and thousands and well, years of, of, of evolution in, in science to actually come up with. And on one hand, you've got that on, mm -hmm. on your off hand. On the other hand, you've got a torch. <laughs> a mm -hmm. flaming torch. Yeah. It's about the contrast, right? And it's the same for the world is really beautiful. I mean, that was the intention at least. I hope people agree. And... At the same time, it's super deadly. Yes. So I had the same feeling playing in Unreal, right? You're in Unreal. I mean, no sane person would want to walk through an alien planet full of monsters. You don't no. do that. Even the, at the, same even time, the plants can rip if you off. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, if you would be there, what's the one thing you want to do is actually look at the yes. alien planet. It's this contrast. Yes. It's the whole thing of the whole plot of Jurassic Park. I'm not going through that. That's mm -hmm. No, you're not. Okay. <laughs> Let's do that. Mm -hmm. So, next question then is related to what we've just been talking about. But the Solus Project is very much focused on the well-being of the character the player is taking the role of. You know, this this astronaut that's been, mm -hmm. you know, the exploration, this pathfinder, if you will, because that's what he is. He's a pathfinder, mm -hmm. isn't he? And he's he's, he's trying mm -hmm. to, or he or she, sorry, everyone, you can be oh, a man or woman. Um, and this, uh, how did this come about in the design of the Solus Project? And was the Solus project built from this basic premise? You mean the character, no, or the fact that their survival and the fact that it is so 
on the brink of not you know you you're constantly having to make sure you're you're well fed you're well hydrated and you're rested and also you're not cold or you're not too hot all of these things these mm-hmm. these aspects to make sure that you're comfortable not to you're not working at two extremes otherwise they start to suffer could you tell us how did that come about was that always there in this game or is it something that came into fruition over time it's always been there. You first of all have to look at this from where I where I came from, right? So I started building levels back in the day. I started building environments, worlds. I'm a world builder. I do a lot of different things nowadays, but I'm a world builder. So if I'm going to build my dream game, basically, I'm going to build a game that's about the world. It's not going to be about gunfights. It's not going to be about characters. It's not going to be about other stuff, right? It's going to be about the actual world, standing on an alien beach and really experiencing it, hearing the wind, uh, you know, feeling the the, the waves crash on the beach beneath you or whatever, or, you know, hitting your feet, all of that, you want to feel the world and really be there. So I looked for a concept that would do that. But if you build that on a normal 2D screen, it's just, you know, in VR, it's a little bit better, but if it's a normal computer and you build that, then people will probably be amazed and they'll say, cool, but then that's it, right? And they'll just run through. And eventually just, they'll just start rushing through. They're like, oh, there's a key there. Let's run there. But if I make them pay attention to the world and if I make them actually respect the world because that world actually is cool, cold and warm and you know it has meteor striking everything around them is evolving they're forced to respect the world and pay attention to it and not just rush through and that's the, the connection between the two that's, that's a fantastic answer and I did not expect that but yes I, I get your feeling that, that's it of course how are you going to connect with the world if you're disconnected from it as a being if you can just run around mm-hmm. first of all 5,000 miles an hour and second of all you can just pick mm-hmm. up health packs and go and bring a, you know, a, you know, a massive you know, a multi-action shotgun thing that blows things away mm-hmm. That's not, you're, not going to in, you're not going to interact mm-hmm. with the world you're not going to feel you're part of it so yeah that's, no. that's... It's, it's about the immersion indeed you, know, you're, you are there you crash landed it's just you it's about the immersion you really have to respect what, if you would be crash landing on an island on earth and you would try to survive for real, then the one thing that, would, that you, you would start feeling, and this is like, you know, psychologically, is you're going to feel you have no control at all. Right? Stuff is going to go wrong, a storm will move in, and it will ruin all, all your plans and push you near that. And it can just happen, and you have no control whatsoever over what's going to happen. And that lack of control is what tends to get to people mentally when they're in a survival situation. I'm trying to get that as well. Yeah, and I love the fact that there's... No, I'm not going to reveal that. I was about to say something, but I won't. But something happens fairly early in the game, and it was quite amusing how it's done, and there's a sound thing that happens, but we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, but, um, no, it's, I, I've personally found there are situations where I'm standing somewhere, I won't say where, and I look left and right and go, right looks less dangerous than left. <laughs> I'm going to go right. God knows what's happening left. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I'm just going to go down, and that's the only reason, because it looked the way that the way you designed it, the art and the the the, the 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 sense of foreboding in one place and the other. You probably think Chris, you're being irrational, but maybe I'm not. I'm just see things like, well, that looks more mm-hmm. treacherous than that way, so I'm going to go that way. <laughs> well, I probably just probably design it like that uh, just to yeah, trick yeah, you. Yeah. I'll probably miss <laughs> so. something amazing. But that's okay, because I can always replay it and, and see what happened if I did go left, as opposed to right. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are things that happen there, and there's, 
and it's just it's so many questions. The more the more you get answers, the more questions erupt around you. And uh, the, li- the little digipad thing, the, the advisor, I call it. I know it's not what it's called, that, but it's the, mm-hmm. the little helper. He's amazing. That thing's amazing because mm-hmm. it can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things, and you do have to pay a lot of attention to it to make sure that you know it's. Because if you're ever lost and don't know where to go, what to do, look at that thing, and that will help you. And it's great. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the interface now. Um, it's quite complex, I think. You may disagree, but I found it a little bit um, overwhelming initially because I didn't know whether it was a traditional Minecraft-like builder. I know it wasn't because I had played it before and I experienced I know what it was. But could you tell us how that evolved and how... Because it's very unique. You have an interesting way of doing a reticule where you point the camera at a certain thing and then the circle would appear and it would go orange and say, you can now interact with this thing. Could you tell us how that evolved? A um, couple of different reasons. First of all, I'm I'm not that good at interface uh, development myself, so I tried to find a system that basically avoided my weaknesses. So there's that. Also, though, from the very beginning, we've always focused. Uh, we've always wanted to make the game work for VR as well, right. right? So you can play the game game without VR, but it it should be able to work in VR. You want immersion as well, so you don't want a million menus popping up. You just basically just want to have the world. So those three things drove me to finding an approach where, well, you basically don't have a menu. There's no interface. You just click it in the world and you can do something. Yeah, it's a lovely thing where you just... I initially struggled with it, sorry. Um, but uh, it's because it was like, well, I've got limited inventory. I can't really... Do, I, there was a lot of times I was picking things up and then dropping them. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to drop mm-hmm. that. Or I'd eat a can of beans just because I was run out of in- inventory. So I managed to just overstuff myself mm-hmm. in beans and then throw the can away. Probably not a good idea. In mm-hmm. fact, it's a very bad idea. But I did it anyway because it's the mm-hmm. only part of the game. And I think there's bits and pieces. I mean, the, it's wonderfully designed how you've, you've littered the initial area with stuff that is actually expendable. To a point. Mm-hmm. Just so people can get a grip of the interface, get an understanding of how it works. And eventually you go, okay, you can't mess around with this anymore. This stuff, from here on in, it's going mm-hmm. to be really scarce. And, uh, and the deeper you get in, no pun intended, um, the, 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 of the game, nothing else, <laughs> hint, um, the worse it, mm-hmm. it, the more fragile and desperate things become. Um, so I just mm-hmm. want to ask you about the interface. And I found it fascinating how I got into it eventually and I managed to, it becomes second nature eventually. Like, oh, I can't do anything with that. Why? Because I haven't got orange reticle and I can't get close enough to it. You know, I could see it. And I think oh, I probably can interact mm-hmm. with that, but I can't because I'm not close enough. It was very, it's a really interesting little interface. I, I, I quite liked it um, by the time I got used to it. But initially, it was like, oh, I can't. What do I do here? What? What? So yeah, but mm-hmm. um, and there's also little puzzles here and there. There's one that had me. Um, I won't go into details, but one had me sort of like kicking my heels, going, "Well, of course that's what you do," but I couldn't figure it out initially. Uh, it took me about or five minutes mm-hmm. to realise that I was being silly. Um, but um, my last question to you, I don't know, sad face, all good things come to an end. But my last question to you mm-hmm. is this. Light plays a huge role in the Solus project to the point where in many instances I found myself working in pitch black darkness and then not because I had to drop my torch or not have my torch on me, do something or drop something and then use my torch again. 
Why is mm-hmm. light such a focus? In why is it so important? Why did you make it so important in the Solus project? Well, it comes back to surviving, I guess. Right? I mean, if you do this in real life, there wouldn't be light no. either. You're in a cave. Okay. So I'm, I'm taking it quite realistic. A lot of the game goes really far, actually. I mean, it has a humidity system, and the humidity actually goes up when the sun goes up in the morning, right? And all of that stuff is calculated. It has a tight system. So I'm trying to take a very realistic approach in a way. So you really have to think about what you're going to do, because otherwise, if there is no, if there is some light in the caves, for example, people can just run in without a torch or without thinking. But now, if you were to lose your torch, for example, you you jump in water holding your torch, and your torch goes out. You're absolutely dead. Yeah. That's it. And in real life, you beat yeah, that as well. I encountered that. But before I went into the water, I swapped it with something else. Steady, Chris. Mm-hmm. I said it. I swapped mm-hmm. it with something else that also emits light. <laughs> and that prevented <laughs> the torch from going out. Um, because I found the stuff. See, I can't talk about it. The only struggle with this game is I don't want to say anything because, you know, the dreaded spoiler thing. But it generally is... A problem with this game in a good way because it, you need to experience it for yourself um, because it is an mm-hmm. experience that you built and it's something that no mm-hmm. one's going to take away from you and it's an extraordinary thing what you've built and I can't thank you enough you and your team for making what, what is an extraordinary experience and um, yeah well, it's you. just a, and that's why I had to have you on the show because I want to share that with everyone um, it's when I first played it. I was standing at an expo hall, very noisy, but I, I, the noise started to dissipate, and I forgot I was there. I was in your world instead, and that was nice because I needed mm-hmm. that. Because <laughs> it can, oh, those expos mm-hmm. can get overwhelming for a lot of people. But your game drew me in. I realised I was there for a good sort of forty-five minutes. I realised I need to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, the Solus Project <laughs> is out on Windows PC and Xbox One. Is that right? Yep, yeah, it's that's out right. now. And, and it has to be... Yeah, it's, out, it's been out on PC since, uh, I think it was June 7, if I remember my own release date. And uh, on Xbox uh, about a week yes. and a half ago, yes. roughly. Uh, like I said, I waited for that version to arrive because I really wanted to... Uh, I prefer... Because I, I, I find some games lend themselves to certain platforms. You may disagree, um, but I really like mm-hmm. the... Um, living room couch experience with this Solus project it gave me mm-hmm. a sense of balance like every now and again when things were really bad I would look around my living room and go well I'm glad I'm not him <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm I'm comfy at home in my living room playing the person who I am um, mm-hmm. so um, well it, it has VR support as well so on PC and that makes it particularly yes, interesting um, uh, I have not yet got VR on my PC. I am getting it for my PS4 when it arrives in October. Um, but um, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm more and more drawn to the VR stuff. I'm sure this would be quite amazing uh, on VR, especially some of the creatures that you encounter. Again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but uh, there are some mm-hmm. things that appear and like, yeah, that's that's pretty, that's fun. That that kind of freaked me out. They'd scare you, but the, nothing would happen. It was quite, they would run away from you more than anything. Uh, which is quite interesting mm-hmm. but um, thank you very very much for being on the show I do appreciate your time hope you enjoyed it yeah absolutely thanks for your time something out of it most people do I've had some developers say that felt like a design team meeting uh, in a good way um, mm-hmm. but um, 
No, again, thank you very much. I do wish you the very best of luck in your future endeavours, whatever they may be. Uh, and again, thank you for, mm-hmm. for making and releasing the Solace Project. Um, the world is better for it than having it in there. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there you just look up the sausage factory and you can find us that'd be great you can follow me on twitter at chris o'regan no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to this show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the Stablemate podcast, should we say, of Spong.com. Bye!